maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing, Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. With the looming threat of military conflict currently on the horizon in Ukraine, today we're joined by Mark Galliotti to discuss the constantly evolving nature of modern warfare. Conventional conflict fought with guns, bombs and soldiers is a horror visited upon the world all too often, but it's also expensive to wage and often unpopular at home. So nations have innovated. Russia wages hybrid warfare on Ukraine. The US threatens Iran with sanctions. China spends billions buying political influence abroad. And the world seems to be heading for a new era of permanent low-level conflict, often unnoticed, undeclared and seemingly unending. Our guest today is Mark Galliotti, honorary professor at UCL and a specialist in politics, criminology, security studies, international relations and anthropology. His recent book, The Weaponization of Everything, is a groundbreaking survey of these new ways of waging war. Joining Mark to discuss the book is Carl Miller, Research Director of the Centre for the Analysis of Social Media at the Think Tank Demos. Here's Carl with more. I am really, really delighted to welcome our guest today, Mark Galliotti. He's an honorary professor at UCL 
SSEES, which I'm sure he'll explain, and Senior Associate at the Royal United Services Institute. Uh, many of you will probably know him for his earlier publishing on transnational crime and uh, Russia security affairs. He's written books including The Vori and We Need to Talk About Putin. And he's here to talk with me about his, and all of you about his new book, The Weaponization of Everything, A Field Guide to the New Way of War. Mark, very, very warm welcome to you. Oh, great to be here. So A, a Field Guide to the New Way of War, your, your book. Let, let's begin, Mark, with what you're saying is not happening anymore. Conventional war, hot war. What's leaving the world as we, as we know it today? Well, I mean, it's not leaving the world totally, unfortunately. I mean, if we look now at the events that are taking place on the Ukrainian border, the prospect of good old-fashioned shooting war hasn't disappeared. But they're becoming much, much less common. I mean, this is one of the striking things. There are various academic centres that, that track the number of wars, the casualties of wars and so forth. And what they're finding is that although there's still a lot of civil wars, unfortunately, we we still do seem to like murdering our cousins, but inter, interest, interstate wars, those old-fashioned sorts, the ones that are declared, fought, ending with a peace treaty or whatever else, they're actually much, much less common. And there's a whole variety of reasons for that, ranging from the fact that war has become eye-wateringly expensive. The military types like to use the term exquisite, you know, exquisite capabilities. But of course, exquisite capabilities is actually another way of just simply saying ridiculously expensive and often, frankly, not very usable. If, if you take all the fighters that were in RAF Fighter Command during the Battle of Britain and price them up and turn them into today's money, you can buy six of the new F-35 planes that, that, that we're getting. And these are obviously phenomenally capable planes, but still just six of them. And remember, one of them fell off an aircraft carrier the other day. So, you know, on the one hand, wars become really expensive in economic terms, but it's also become expensive in political terms. Populations now are much, much less willing, even within authoritarian regimes, to accept boys coming home in, in, in boxes as a price of empire. And also in terms of we now have international law and we also have interconnected economies, which means that when you fight you are also often probably destroying your own markets, your own suppliers and such like. So I think for all these reasons, that's what's going away to an extent. There will always be, unfortunately, some of the old-fashioned wars, but they're just becoming much, much less, shall we say, appealing for our world's leaders to fight. And, and does that mean, Mark, that we are skipping into a world of kind of bucolic universal peace or, or perhaps your book might be suggesting that there is a, a, another kind of conflict which is, uh, which is uh, taking centre stage instead. Quite. Well, w where would we authors be if we were heading into that, that realm? <laughs> no, I mean, it, it would be delightful if it were so, but I, I suspect anyone can open a newspaper or, or fire up Twitter and very quickly see that that is definitely not the case. No, because all the various pressures that, that have existed between states, between blocks and so forth, they haven't gone away. We, we still have all kinds of rivalries. And in some ways, they have been liberated by the end of the Cold War. You know, we think of the Cold War as a period of relative peace, admittedly one enforced by the threat of thermonuclear Armageddon. But actually, the Cold War was a period of relative peace in the Northern Hemisphere. And part of that was exactly, we just simply exported all our conflicts. The Cold War was not a time of peace if you're in Afghanistan or Angola, Nicaragua or Vietnam. But now, well, we, we have no more of those kind of con controlling instruments. We have so many more rivalries, we, and actually now we, we absolutely can engage in rivalries with, with other countries around the world. But that goes in different directions. If we're not going to be fighting wars with them, if we're not going to be sending the gunboats, 
how else can we prosecute those conflicts? And so I think that's really what, what's changing, is that we are in an age where those conflicts are still there, but they're now being waged by a whole variety of different means. And before we go any further, we're going to have to broach that, that, that kind of tricky topic for us researchers, you know, definitions. And, and for, for those, you know, uh, perhaps not part of this world, it is worth saying that, that a whole kind of subgenre of kind of event and, and kind of analyst has, has stepped in, haven't they, Mark, over the last kind of five years to kind of look at this emergence you know, and they, they, there's a whole kind of um, universe of words like hybrid warfare and the grey zone and asymmetric conflict and so on. How, how do you kind of navigate this this somewhat kind of molten vocabulary to, to try and make sense of all of it? Largely with Olympian contempt. I mean, the problem is <laughs> that so much of this is also driven by, and again, we also know this, you know, with, within the realm of academe, there is a premium on coming up with a new concept. And then you become the researcher du jour until someone else comes up with another one. So, for example, take, take this notion of hybrid war, which is generally defined as a conflict which is fought with a mix of kinetic, otherwise shooting, and non-kinetic means. Well, the problem with that is that every war since the, the dawn of conflict has been hybrid. It's only in video games that you win a war by killing all the other person's soldiers. In practice, wars are always fought on the level of morale, will, and in some ways just simply determination to, to keep fighting. So you're always trying to just simply undermine, undermine the enemy's will to, to resist. So, you know, hybrid war doesn't really work. A lot of these others, asymmetric war and such like. Grey zone, you mentioned, I mean, that, that's the best. Because it's almost like, a, look, we, we admit we have no idea what to call it, but we need to call it something. So let's call it something like this. There will no doubt be something else coming along next year. And this actually does, I'm glad you raised it, because it really speaks to an important question, which is precisely the extent to which we become victims trapped by our own definitions. And in this respect, I think that we have to come to terms with the fact that we're going to need to redefine or redevelop or just re-understand our terms, like war and peace. I mean, we are at peace at the moment, aren't we? Well, we, we think so. Except, of course, that we have troops currently in a sort of, you know, showdown on, on, on the eastern flank of, of NATO. But also we have a constant challenge of disinformation, of cyber attacks and so forth. Are those acts of war? Are those just uh, the static of, of international competition? This is the point. We have no definitions for, for these kind of new contests at the moment. And so rather than just trying to kind of layer on some new term, you know, non-linear war, that's what, it's another one that I really love, because again, what, what on earth does that actually mean? In, instead of just simply trying to find some new bolt-on term, we should actually understand that the whole concept of warfare is changing. So it's, it's the ideas behind it, not the word that needs to be done addressed. Okay, well, let's jump into the grey zone. And, and one of the things, Mark, that I, I loved so much about your book, actually, were these kind of vignettes where you, where you really, I mean, each chapter and section kind of bring that conflict to life in a really kind of concrete, specific way. H how about you take us into one of those and, and kind of explain what the grey zone and conflict within it and warfare now in its extended and ubiquitous form, what that really looks like? Well, think about grey zone, for example, that, that term, it's one that has been generated by the military, particularly came from the US military, because they decided they didn't like hybrid and they were looking for a, a, a new term. And so it's defined really very much on, in the sense of something that ac accompanies warfighting. 
So yes, there's their soldiers doing their thing, but then there's also cyber attacks or whatever. What I think is really interesting is when one looks at the situations where the non-military means replace the actions of, of, of soldiers. I mean, for example, you know, one example that, that, that I do use in the book is of, of lawfare, the use of, of law in some ways as, as a weapon. And it relates to this Russian cargo ship that was taking embargoed weapons all the way around Europe and the UK to, to Syria to support the very unpleasant regime uh, of Bashar al-Assad that was busy suppressing his own people exceedingly bloodily. Now, there were all kinds of sanctions and embargoes placed upon such military trade, but the ship was being cunning enough to not move within territorial waters. And you know, when one thinks of the instruments that could be used, you know, you think, oh, well, send in the special boat service to seize it or whatever. No, I mean, what happened is, and I think it was actually a brilliant move, is instead, Her Majesty's government turned to the insurance industry. After all, Lloyd's of London, the centre for the, the world's maritime insurance is, as you as you gather, in London. And they just simply had a word with the company that, that was involved in insuring this ship and just simply said, you know, you do realise that this is likely to be involved in, in embargo breaking, which actually would seem to be in, you know, invalidating the clauses of the insurance. And they said, yes, you're right, either because they were convinced or because, frankly, when HMG wants to speak to you on an issue like this, it's, it's worth listening. They pulled the insurance. And although that might not sound like much, actually, Having an uninsured cargo ship on the high waters is a very big deal indeed. So what happened is the, the ship turned around and went home. Not a shot was fired. No secret agent was involved. It was actually just by manipulating, I mean, of all things, my apologies to any listeners who happen to work in the insurance industry. But, you know, what could sound more boring than manipulating the insurance industry to ensure that you force another country to not break your rules and do something to help try and stop some of the bloodiest uh, actions that are taking place in a civil war in Syria. That was conflict, whether we like it or not, and we found ways of moving it into the new realm. So I think this is it. Grey zone is in some ways a simple way of defining this imaginative use of all the other instruments at our disposal to impose our will upon other states. And sometimes it's going to be economic sanctions, sometimes it's going to be the use of international alliances, and sometimes it's going to be in the use of the insurance industry, as in this case. But the point is, these are ways that are unconventional, and they take advantage of the way in the new world we are all so interconnected and interdependent. Let's dwell on this, Mark, because I think this raises a, a kind of excellent kind of secondary theme for us to touch on, which is exactly what kinds of states and actors might be gaining power through the emergence of these kinds of techniques. Now, it seems to me anyway, that certainly within Whitehall, there is there's a great deal of anxiety about the emergence of hybrid conflict and, and the grey zone, especially with disinformation, information warfare. I guess there's this narrative which is happening within government that, oh, this is something which autocrats are better at than democracies and, and the kind of all the advantages that democracies have had around, you know, conventional military overmatch are somehow being eroded through conflict, conflict finding these new forms. But the example you gave, and perhaps financial warfare too, as another one, seems to imply that actually there's plenty of power for, for large, prosperous Western democracies in conflicts which don't necessarily have anything to do with conventional militaries. Absolutely. It's all too easy to go the sort of the route that says, oh my God, it's all of a sudden the other guys, the bad guys who actually have, have the advantage here. And there is some truth in that, in part because other countries, and particularly if we look at who, you know, who have been 
regarded as the key users of this, Russia, Iran, North Korea, China. They have often been in positions where they are the weaker, certainly in terms of the conventional old forms of power. And therefore, they exactly have to think like good global sort of geopolitical guerrillas. How can they move the, the battle away from where their enemies are stronger and towards where either they're stronger or at least the enemy is, is weaker? So yes, that, that, that's perfectly true. But in some ways, it's just simply has meant that their weakness has been a spur to the imagination. To a degree, we got fat and lazy because precisely we had economic power, we had military power, we had technological power, we had soft power, the power of example. So we seem to be on the top of the heap. Why did we need to change? Now we're finding it out. And this is, I mean, at the risk of sounding like a real creep. I mean, I think one of the things that came out really well in your book, The Death of the Gods, is precisely this, this sense of a whole concept of what power is, is shifting. And it doesn't mean that the old forms of power just go away. It just simply means that they're now supplemented or rivaled by a whole new variety. So, you know, yes, it's in a position in which a country like, like Russia that has, for a start, a very, very strong tradition, actually, of, of hacking that, you know, go, goes back to, to the early 90s and, and, and to an extent into the late 80s, can harness that as, as a weapon. But yeah, it certainly doesn't mean that, that, that we are weak. And in some ways, it's because we have decided to think that certain things don't count as warfare. I mean, when we level economic sanctions on a country, we are engaging in economic warfare, whether we're willing to use that language or not. And again, part of the purpose of the book is just simply to, is to say, look, this is the way the world is getting. Let's just be honest about it and let's just talk about it. So yes, we have all kinds of advantages. We have economic power, technological edges. One of the reasons why the Russians are more able to mess with us with cyber is because they're willing to do it. It's not actually that GCHQ, the NSA and various other Western agencies do not have the capacity to do so. It's just that they have not been given, and I'm glad to say, they have not been given the political say-so to crash the computers running, for example, Russia's railway grid should have a tremendously serious impact given that that moves most of the food that goes to Russian cities. You know, things like that. We do have those capabilities. So, yes, so this is not about a council of despair. It's too easy to go that route. And yes, you can get a really kind of headline chasing book if you write that one that says everything's terrible and the bad guys are winning. But that's not how the world really is. Absolutely. Absolutely right, Mike. Couldn't agree more. And uh, yeah, sometimes sometimes it is very important as analysts and writers to push back against a kind of mono narrative of the internet destroying everything or anything destroying everything. But but let, let, let's talk about new relationships. So so what are the kind of new relationships which have formed in this in the in in in, in the murky world of the grey zone? Um, you know, the intersection between, say, organised crime and intelligence agencies, I think, is an absolutely fascinating one that I know, I know you've looked at. Yeah, well, if I can actually just pull the aperture back. I mean, again, this is one of the interesting things. Nowadays, in the modern world, you know, we, we basically no longer have the old-style ideological divide between the socialist bloc and the capitalist bloc, even though that was always a little bit of a sort of hazy one. We are, in many ways, in, in a post-ideological age. And therefore, we actually find a whole variety of different actors getting involved in, in what in the book I, I call gig geopolitics. That actually a lot of it is, is, is outsourced precisely. And in some cases, it's outsourced to gangsters and sometimes it's outsourced to lawyers. So just pick those two examples because, of course, there is absolutely no connection 
between the two. I mean, gangsters, you know, we have seen, again, there are examples one, one can point to in the past, particularly during World War II, but it was a relatively rare thing. Now, actually, it's becoming increasingly routine for, and again, here, the, the Russians, I think, very much led the way, in part precisely because of the very uh, incestuous relationship, to be perfectly honest, between organized crime and organized power in, in, in both Yeltsin's and, and Putin's Russia's. Where, you know, we see that clearly the intelligence agencies do outsource particular operations to them. Or, even more interestingly, they, they tax them. They, they, they turn to gangsters and say, look, we know, we know what you're doing. Um, we're not going to get in your way. However, in return, we will expect you to kick a certain amount of your profits to this particular bank account in Switzerland or Liechtenstein or Latvia or, or wherever. The Russians had this term, Chornaya Kassa, black accounts. In other words, monies that doesn't seem to have any kind of Kremlin fingerprints on it, but which they can then use for political subversion operations, backing a, you know, an extremist website here, a particular radical political party there, that kind of thing. So, you know, gangsters get used for anything from that all the way up to assassination. We saw a, a Chechen gunned down in the middle of Berlin in the end of 2019, Selim Khan Khangoshvili. Turned out that the assassin was actually a, you know, a criminal contract killer who had been hired by Russia's Federal Security Service for this mission. That's in some ways the more obvious. You'd think, well, of course, gangsters, they, they are for hire, they are amoral, they're always operating in, in the shadows, and they have, shall we say, a, a particular skill set that from time to time is going to be useful. And it, we've also seen the Chinese dealing with the, the Chinese triads and such like. But when I move to things like lawyers and financiers, again, you know, we're in a realm in which, you know, it's not as if a foreign intelligence service would approach a respected London or New York or wherever law firm and say, you know, hello, I'm, I, I am from this intelligence service and I would like to contract you. But we may well find that, you know, oligarchs and minigarchs corporations and so forth, engage people, whether it's for lobbying, whether it's for moving money or whatever. And, you know, in, in today's, frankly, rather amoral, it's all about the business world, in many cases, pe people accept. So in, in this way, you know, you can hire publicists, you can hire all kinds of different people on the, the international market of talent. And so that, I think, is, 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 is what's happened. And the gangsters are just simply, you might say, at the most extreme end of a whole spectrum of different services to which you can outsource your political conflicts these days. Mm. Well, dwelling on this idea maybe of gangsters and outsourcing and taking it wider, Mark, like, how, how, what parts of conflict now, if any, are new versus old? Because you know some of what you said like reminds me of say just active measures during the Cold War, much older uses of mercenaries, deniable assets, and so on. Are, are there aspects of this which are very old? Aspects of this which you know would be familiar to any historian of the twentieth century? Are, are, is, are there parts of this also which are genuinely new and novel and and you haven't seen before in in kind of geopolitical competition? I mean, I think in essence the answer is no. This is not new. It's often got very, very dramatically new forms. I mean, there, there is this recurring conceit through the book that I draw parallels with the Italian Renaissance, a period where precisely you actually had, you know, countries that, that fought as much through culture and literature as actually through force of arms. And in which, in a way, everyone was everyone's ally today and everyone's ally enemy tomorrow. And so there was a very, very fluid politics at the time, which I think, again, is something that, that we're facing. But, you know, if, if one looks at all the various forms, 
you can track them all back. The thing is, though, that I mean, obviously, you have very different kind of forms. You know, uh, cyber particularly has has introduced a whole new realm of, of opportunities to put it bluntly, mess with other countries and seek to interfere with them and, and bend them to your will. But the, the human essence is all very, very familiar. It is essentially that, you know, wh- whether it's in terms of mobilizing culture to try and sort of win soft power to get other countries to feel that they want to be like you and therefore will, will join your, your cause, whether it's in terms of, as I said, you know, um, undermining your enemy's capacity to feed themselves and, you know, their, their health care and everything else. Yes. Now, once upon a time, you would do that by catapulting disease plague victims' bodies over the walls into an enemy city or by ravaging the farmland outside of their city walls. Now you do it through, again, maybe it's embargoes on crops or, you know, other methods like, like that. So I think the forms have changed dramatically, but when it comes down to it, conflict is, it has to be said, pretty fundamental to human nature. And societies and our polities, you know, have had a lot of experience in how they, they, they conflict with each other. And so there aren't, I think, new ways to do it. In essence, there are very, very new forms. Are we, where is this going next then? So are there new battlefields? So if the idea of conflict is stretching and elasticating and essentially almost kind of burrowing its way into, in, into so many different parts of, 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 of society and human organization, where, where do you see the new battlefields to be? You know, are we, is the metaverse going to become a, maybe it already is a, a, a theatre of, of conflict. You know, is, is crypto going to be going to be wrapped into, um, you know, confrontation between states? Um, where, where are the next places, Mark, that, 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 that states are going to find to compete one another in? I mean, that's really the big question. And in some ways, let me answer it on kind of X and Y axes. I mean, in terms of kind of specific domains, I mean, all of those things that you mentioned can be weaponized. Uh, I mean, this is like you know, one of the reasons why there is such a concern about the, the drive for quantum computing. You know, whoever can, can build these quantum c- computers that can do ridiculous numbers of calculations at, at a time can essentially crack all kinds of different forms of computer encryption, and that brings great power with it. So, I mean, yes, it's, it's constantly been looking at for that new technological edge. There's going to be the, the new arenas. I mean, you know, once upon a time, cultural wars meant writing books and pamphlets saying how you were great and how the other country was was pretty terrible and hoping you could smuggle them in. Then it moved into radio broadcasts. Now, absolutely, we are seeing it played out, whether it's in terms of the, you know, comments on articles or Twitter or Instagram or TikTok, indeed, as it's becoming increasingly, it seems, weaponized this, in, in this age. Everything, everything is, is up for grabs. But I think, you know, to, to, to take the other angle, I think also where this is going is precisely this, this notion that all countries, and this is a very dystopian sounding situation, but in all countries are in some ways in a permanent state of, if not war, but conflict with all other countries. You know, because we do find, you know, friends do spy on friends, that they do compete often ruthlessly in economic competition. They do lean on each other during trade negotiations and, and everything else. And really the question will just simply be one of degree. 
that you know the relationships at, from time to time will be that much more harmonious and at other times will be that much more conflicted. But the point is that, in a way, it should always be seen on the spectrum. We still have this very old-fashioned, post-Westphalian binary notion that there is war and there is peace. And you have a war and then you resolve it and there is peace. Uh, unfortunately not. We may well not be getting the real nasty hot wars in the main, thank God. But on the other hand, this idea that there will be this Elysian peace where everyone's actually happy with each other and friendly and cooperative, that isn't, isn't really the way the world is. So constant competition, exactly all new technologies, all new domains will indeed be, be there. It's the same equivalent to the fact that any, anything can be criminalized. Whenever you, know, you have a new idea, a new situation, a new technology, someone will be thinking, how can I break the law and make money with this? Well, so too, everything can be weaponized. Someone in, in some state will be thinking, okay, you know, what, what uh, particular opportunities does this give? That, unfortunately, is, is, is the nature of the modern world in which actually the most weaponizable thing of all is ultimately going to be imagination. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. NetSuite.com slash squared. So the, the great game, I, I guess, it has always felt to me very important, but also quite distant. You know, something which is happening with kind of great matters of state and, and diplomats and, and, and spies, usually in Vienna or, or perhaps Berlin. I guess what you're saying here is, or at least what I'm drawing from it is, you know, conflict's going to be constant, it's going to be ceaseless, it's going to be ubiquitous, and therefore it's kind of going to turn up at all of our doorsteps, you know, normal people really that don't work for the Foreign Office. What does that mean 
Like, like how might it change or touch our lives in 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 ways that that, that in in the future that we we might not know about? You know, is are our companies going to somehow be wrapped into this? Are are we going to perhaps become unwitting foot soldiers in some kind of geopolitical competition? Or or do you see a lot of this to be passing us by largely unnoticed and our kind of daily lives actually remaining? similar to how they as they were before? Well, I mean, it'll probably pass unnoticed because we won't necessarily connect the dots. Classic example, I mean, we're speaking on, on the day when the energy price cap has been, it's been announced that it'll be going up. We're paying a lot more to, to heat our homes. And we're also paying a lot more for goods in the shops because of the knock-on effects. Well, part of the reason, and I don't want to make this sound as if this is all that, that nasty Mr. Putin did this to us, but you know, there's no way of getting around the fact that part of the reason why at present gas prices are ridiculously high is because of the impact of the geopolitical struggle that's currently taking place between Russia, which doesn't supply us with a lot of gas, but supplies Europe and that affects prices overall. And, and therefore that, you know, that there is, there is, you know, the Russians clearly are happy to squeeze and at the same time, the Americans have been lobbying very hard to stop the opening of a new gas pipeline, Nord Stream 2, to Germany from Russia, in part because the Germans want to be selling their expensive liquid natural gas. You know, I mean, so the, these are kind of, on the one level, absolutely very top level, great game kind of issues. But they have an impact every time you switch your radiator on. So, I mean, that, that's one example of the way that, you know, like it or not, we are constant, constantly being faced with this. Just as on a positive level, in many ways, it's conflict that drives technological change. And it's not necessarily intended to be for our use, but we become the beneficiaries. We're talking over the internet, which, you know, one of the, the drivers behind the connection to the growth of the internet was precisely trying to create a secure distribution system which could, could survive nuclear war. So, you know, I think we will see both positive and negative impacts because of this. And, and again, here I'm going to sound a little bit like Michael Gove with his new levelling up paper commenting about the, the Medici <laughs> effect. But actually, just <laughs> as the Renaissance was a period of phenomenal cultural, economic and technological innovation and change, so too we, I think we will find exactly that this era of competition will only accelerate the, the current uh, technological and social changes that are taking place. So again, this is it. Although, you know, I may have written about the weaponization of everything, but it's not all bad. All right. Well, on, on that balance note, then let's move to audience questions. So it's, it's, it's your turn, everyone, enough from me to, to ask Mark whatever you like. The first one from Ewan, thank you, which I think is a great question here, which kind of wonderfully moves us actually towards responses, which we haven't really had a chance to talk about much. So uh, Ewan from London asks, you Mark, which elements of Western society are recognising the book's message, which are not, but should be? We see a lot of different uh, groups, interests and so forth, recognising elements of the problem. But I think this is this is the thing. Actually, they, they they focus on the very very specific one. One one talks to police and counterintelligence officers, and they're very well aware, for example, about the use of gangsters as increasingly a tool of geopolitics. But that's that's what they're focusing on. You talk to people who are interested in macroeconomics, and they talk about manipulation of the markets, and particularly China being in a position increasingly to throw its weight around and use that as a political tool. So in a way, one I think you know we have. People who have visions of narrow spectra, parts of the spectrum, 
What we don't have, and this unfortunately is going to be really as much anything else a task for our political leadership, is people who are going to put it all together. People who are going to say, it's not that we actually have a gangsters and geopolitics problem and shifting focus of economic power and you know China controlling rare earths that are going to be vital for cell phone technology and uh, you know all the, these are not all individual problems these are all the aspects of a changing environment so i think that that for me is the is is the big issue it's not that any of these are something that no one has thought of before but they haven't necessarily realized that what they're holding is actually just one part of the jigsaw okay well maria from birmingham next question actually does um, dwell on this issue of linkedness and connectedness. So she says, uh, you said that civil wars are still a big part of modern conflict, but have things changed now where hostile powers like Russia are able to encourage civil war, for instance, in the US, by manipulating social media? So she's very much, I think, kind of perhaps posing a slight challenge to you, Mark, on the, on, on the connection between hybrid and grey zone war and actually how that might bubble back up into in, into conventional conflict of different kinds. Yeah, no, it's, it's really important. And again, I think, you know, if we, if we look at modern civil wars, it's very, very rare for them not to have foreign involvement, one or the other side being sort of supported by, by outside powers. So this is it. There, there is always a blurring there. But specifically on that point about sort of generating civil wars, this actually speaks to a really interesting, huge debate, which is really about disinformation and misinformation, and actually how effective it really is. And look, this is still an area that's being debated, and it's still an area in which the research is, is being done. But at present, what it really seems to show is that these kinds of foreign attempt, outside attempts to manipulate opinion what they can do is they, they radicalize. They can't change. They can't take someone who, you know, today thought that the European Union was great and through magical mind control powers, turn them into an ardent Brexiteer. But what they can do is some, is take someone who was actually just a bit disgruntled, didn't really like the European Union, didn't really know much about it, but perhaps didn't think it was great, but who quite possibly wouldn't have bothered voting and convince them. In fact, this is a really important issue. And it's you know, essential about the existential nature of, you know, of, of Britain as a sovereign country. And that's why you absolutely have to go out and vote. And so that is generally the, the pattern we have seen, that what, and it's not just Russian, but you know, what, what generally the, these, these kind of uh, you know, influence operations can do is actually they, they radicalize. And it's a term that we, you know, we tend to use radicalize in the context of terrorism. Well, actually, it has a much, much broader sort of sense. And that is where I think that there, there is a very real problem. And although, you know, again, it's not going to create civil wars, but it can certainly worsen them. And then once they happen, then other countries can use all kinds of other means of, of, of exacerbating them, whether it's providing weapons or providing political top cover or, or, or whatever else. So absolutely, it fits into this notion of our capacity to, as I say, perhaps rather kind of simplistically mess with other countries. But the point is that tends to require, you know, that particular trajectory, it tends to require all the seeds to have been there. And if I can just very briefly conclude, to go back to, you know, the things that we can do about it, that's why I think it's so important that we acknowledge that one of the things that we have to do in our societies is not just demonize and isolate those communities that feel marginalized. We have to find ways of integrating them because otherwise they are precisely the weak link in our societal, societal chain. Well, the next question keeps us on the topic of disinformation, which I will actually at the end shamelessly editorialise on slightly myself. So the next questioner um, asks, uh, why is it wrong 
for uh, Western nations to retaliate with disinformation campaigns of their own in countries like Russia and China who are currently attacking democracies with disinformation? That's the question. My own thought to append to that is we know that Western, much like we know that Western countries have built capability for, for cyber operations, we know they've built capability for information operations as well. And it seems to me striking, Mark, and I like any thoughts you have on it, that, that it, we haven't published really in any way, it seems to me, a kind of rules of engagement for the information space. And that that seems to be an absolute prerequisite for, for any military and any liberal democracy to feel like they can act in that space at all. And I wonder whether in the world of information warfare, that, that, that's a kind of strange example of where conventional militaries are actually acting outside of the laws of war, as it were, and therefore feeling like there's much less that they, they can do because they don't know what's allowable, what's permissible, mm-hmm. and what they have um, kind of sign off from society, in a sense, uh, to be able to do. Yeah, that's re- it's really important. I mean, again, that, that's unfortunately the kind of question that I, c- I could give a 40-minute answer for, but I'll try and, try and give a four-minute one. I mean, in terms of why shouldn't Western societies do that back? Well, I mean, on a moral level, I mean, why not? There is a practical issue, though, is that precisely authoritarian regimes tend to be that much more capable of resisting it because they tend to have more censorship. The media is heavily or entirely state controlled. It's a harder, much harder target to to use for disinformation. So, I mean, the question is in part whether it really makes sense to do it rather than anything else. But more broadly, I mean, again, I think th- at the moment we are still trapped in our notion of ourselves as we are the good guys. We don't do disinformation. We do strategic communication, which I have a tendency to feel is what we call propaganda when we are doing it. Um, the fact of the matter is, again, that there is a moral and tactical choice to be made. And in some ways, I think this is this has played out by what happened particularly from the um, American radio stations that broadcast into the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact through the period of the Cold War, Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty. Now, initially, they were heavily controlled and and covered by the CIA. They were absolutely, they were disinformation instruments. But what they came to realise that, in fact, the most effective way of undermining these regimes was not to basically counter, try and counter regime lies with Western lies, but instead to try and counter them with truth that that was the most corrosive thing. Once they got, and I think actually this is an area where it has to be said, the BBC World Service, Russian service, was, was, was extraordinarily influential because people reached the point where they would absolutely, they would believe the BBC over Pravda, Izvestia, and all the other instruments of, of, of Soviet state propaganda. So I think the, the other answer about, you know, why, why do we not use disinformation is, do we really want to go down that route? Once we go down that route, then unfortunately that, that there is a risk that, that we lose what is actually, I would suggest, one of our very real edges, which is precisely that we are liberal, democratic, transparent, law-based states. If we start playing by the rules of the authoritarian regimes, not only are we moving into a battle space where they are having had the advantage, but we are giving up one of our own key strengths. And just so finally, I'm bringing it back to the business of, of the soldiers, you know, people like the 77th Brigade, whom you've written about, I mean, yes, I think this is what, this is one of the problems that at, at present political, political understandings about conflict are lagging behind the technological capacities. And no one wants to be the one, I think, who, who comes up and says, these are the circumstances in which, for example, we are willing to lie to, to publics. 
because that would have to be part of any such discussion. And again, I, I would hope that at some point we have political masters who are willing to actually grasp those particular nettles and say, however uncomfortable, we need to talk about this and we need to do something about it. Mark, the next question is taking us from, from perhaps an area of apparent high ground to one where many people feel the UK could do better. And that's the amount of dirty money can be swirling around in London. So the next question says, do you think Britain will ever crack down on dirty money in London? Or are politicians too dependent on the cash? So also, mm. I, I guess, um, you know, party, party donations making an appearance there as well. Sure. You see, it's not just politicians. I mean, we, we, yes, I mean, and, and I'm certainly not, not, not saying that, that that isn't a factor. It's actually more that there is a whole realm of facilitators. I mean, in some ways, it's, it's not actually, I think, the politicians really who are driving this. It's, it's the banks, it's the lawyers, it's the estate agents who handle these multi, multi, multi-million pound penthouse purchases and, and, and such like, who are very good at lobbying and very good at trying to ensure that, that uh, nothing gets, gets cracked down on there. And more broadly, it is the fact that, yes, London is one of the great money launderers of the world. Now, we've got to realise what kind of money laundry it is. You, know, you turn up with a suitcase full of cocaine-stained $100 bills, and they will call the police. However, if you wear a nice suit and you have had the courtesy to pre-wash the money through a half dozen different uh, jurisdictions before, so it's bounced from Bogota to Belize to the British Virgin Islands, Israel, Cyprus, Latvia, and then comes then you'll be welcome with open arms because that is the nature of the economic model. But in fairness, I mean, where are the other great hubs of money laundering in the world? New York, Dubai, Frankfurt. I mean, unfortunately, that's the nature of, the, of, of modern finance. We absolutely could do a lot more. And I think that, you know, we're now beginning to get real pressure to do that, particularly things like beneficial ownership. So you can actually know who honestly owns this building or that company. I mean, that, that's an area which really we, we, we can do a lot more. Do I think we, we, we're going to actually see any real change? I mean, I suspect so. And in some ways, it's obviously what's going on at the moment with, with, with Russia that is driving it. Because we have this concern that Russian money is somehow influenced. The thing is, I see no evidence that the amount of, of questionable or downright dirty Russian cash, which is in the UK, has in any way really affected policy. We've got to remember that actually, you know, if one looks at, for example, the, you know, Europe, I mean, the UK and Poland are the countries that absolutely stand out in terms of the very strong line they've taken against Russia. You know, if this is, if this is after Russian influences has been brought to bear and whatever, I think actually what oligarch money does is it buys you the kind of influence that means you're invited to all the best parties. And when you want to build a new underground swimming pool or a helipad, then you get your planning permission quickly. It's that kind of personal capital that it really gets. But because we're worried about it, it it'll drive the process and whatever laws are brought in, to essentially try and address Russian dirty money will, I trust, also be applied to Chinese and Nigerian and Indian and, yes, American and Swedish and everyone else's dirty money because we're all in, involved in this. But I think it really takes that kind of specific case that shocks and startles and forces political change to really get us moving. 
you know, we would not be having the debate that we have at the moment about Russian dirty money were it not for what's happening in Ukraine and how you know, Russia generally is, is launching this kind of covert political war against Britain and the rest of the West. And sort of likewise, it'll probably take some other kind of specific shock to force more movement. Because yeah, at the moment, unfortunately, the bankers, the lawyers, the estate agents, and the politicians, they all have an incentive in talking tough, uh, but not acting. Well, the next question, Mark, brings us on to another absolutely fascinating theme, actually, which we haven't had a chance to discuss, which is the kind of interactions between corporation and competition. So talking tough, acting tough, but then also actually working with, you know, the whole panoply of actors which uh, which are out there and surround us too. So the question asks, if we're all locked into competition, do you think it's fanciful to think that we could come together to halt something like climate change? I mean, climate change is, is, is a really sort of difficult one, obviously, because it's a sort of huge issue. But, you know, what's really striking is even despite this current very, very tough east-west tension, when we had the recent COP26 summit, the Russians sent actually a, a bit last minute, but they sent a really quite high power delegation and they genuinely engaged. And, you know, the person, one of the people there was, was Putin's personal advisor on ecological affairs. Likewise, I mean, we have obviously Russian hackers running wild across the West. Sometimes they're just purely criminal hackers. Sometimes they're criminally ha criminal hackers who you might say have a certain degree of top cover from the security authorities that just want to say, look, as long as you're hitting the West, that's fine. And sometimes they're clearly actually just simply employees of the Russian intelligence community. At the same time, though, just a couple of weeks ago, we had a major series of arrests against a hacking group in Russia called Our Evil, which was involved in a series of ransomware attacks in the United States. Now, Maybe in part the Russians were doing that because the Americans asked and they wanted to sort of publicly show good faith. But it's also because actually the Russians themselves have started to get really quite worried about cybercrime because actually Russia is in many ways a very advanced society. I mean, it has the same levels of, of internet penetration and usage as, as, as the UK. Um, you know, very extensive use of e-government as well as e-banking and e-commerce sort of which basically means there's a lot of opportunities for the criminals. And they're now finding themselves being attacked not only by Russian hackers, but Western hackers, and although they don't like to talk about it too much, Chinese hackers. So even in the midst of, you know, a kind of confrontation that is seeing, you know, American and British forces being flown to reinforce NATO's flank and weapons being sent to the Ukrainians precisely to kill Russians, to put it bluntly, if the Russians escalate, even amidst that crisis, we're still talking about genuine climate change progress. Slow, but genuine. And there is still room for law enforcement cooperation. I mean, one last example, again, um, because I you know, travel quite a lot to Moscow and you know, from time to time I, I, I talk to Western police liaison officers who are based in embassies there. And one of the things they're saying, you know, what's really striking is that dis you know, regardless of the political situation, paedophilia cases, never any problem. Those zoom through. So I think this is the interesting thing. As we get used to this idea that we are in constant competition, but also constant opportunities for collaboration, we will find these interesting constellations whereby we can be absolutely daggers drawn in various arenas, but find common interests in others. That I think is exactly the nature of this very, very complex and dynamic and fluid world that we face. 
Are, the, are these areas where states as states find common ground in the face of a series of forces which many might see as actually undermining the power of states? So, so I, I guess a, a, lot of, a lot of what you've been talking about is kind of almost like states adapting to a new world where, you know, actually, in many ways, states are struggling to, to express power. You know, it might be because cybercrime is extremely difficult for them to deal with and enforce, or it might be because all kinds of transnational flows of money and people are meaning that borders and geography are becoming less important. In a way, can, can we see cooperation in those terms, Mark, as, as, as kind of states being like, oh, my God, like we really are being undermined as entities here. Like, let's, we need to work together to kind of re-express you know, in a way, our own power of states back onto the world? It's a really interesting question. I mean, I think, I think there is an element of that. Again, I think some, some states are much more aware of this than, than others, I feel. But precisely, in some ways, it is usually it is the states which are more aggressive, assertive, use whichever word you want, in trying to exercise power, that also have come to realise all the more carefully the limitations of traditional state power. Whether it's in terms of transnational corporations that can decide whose tax regime they fall under and who actually it's very difficult to, to control. I mean, you know, again, to use an obvious example, you know, the Russians have increasingly been having trouble trying to influence tech giants with social media platforms. Um, and try and force them to, you know, comply with, with Russian law. And to a degree, it's, I mean, it's an emotive way of putting it, but in some ways they're having to almost resort to hostage taking in the sense of they say, we will prosecute your employees in our country for decisions made by your head office if you do not com comply. And this is fine up to a point until the point when Google or whoever decides, well, you know, we're, we're just going to pull our guys out of Russia, but Russians can continue to access our sites and so forth. And that forces the Russians to then think, how can we block that? And, and so forth. It becomes very difficult. So yes, I mean, I think that, that states are finding finding it difficult. And one of the interesting areas, you know, we have a tendency to have this kind of slightly sort of cyberpunkish corporations, mega corporations and states binary kind of contest. But it's actually also um, what we might think of as human communities which I think are one of the areas that are really interesting because nowadays, you know, people can connect and maybe you're part of some kind of gaming clan or maybe you just simply are the people who follow some particular Instagram feed and engage with a, an influencer or whatever. But, you know, the opportunity for people to, to interact with each other in ways that are pretty much entirely, I mean, short of cutting off the internet, pretty much entirely outside the control of the state. I mean, that's becoming increasingly interesting. And I think one of the new big issues is, you know, people who are able to mobilize that. People who are able to take, well, you know, I've got 25 million fans around the world and I'm now going to tell them whether it's to lobby government or to use this particular product or just simply not to do whatever. You know, that I think is something that states are already clearly sort of concerned about because that's not something that they, they, they're used to facing and they don't have the clear instruments to, to deal with this, this thing. So yes, again, going back to this earlier point about new forms of power emerging and power that is largely sort of locust outside the state structures and states working out either how can we hijack them? How can we co-opt them? How can we control them? And if need be, how can we eliminate them? But always with that slightly uncomfortable sense of, but there's probably a limit to what we can do. We've spoken about Putin, 
somewhat. So, so let, let's talk about strong men in general for a second. I think especially interesting, given the kind of recent threats in UK, Ukraine around around direct sanctioning of, of, of Putin and, uh, and, and members of his family, uh, as I understand it. Where, how, where does strong men or women, uh, Mark, sit in the, the hybrid war or the grey zone? Are, are they going to be increasingly kind of targeted kind of directly, perhaps, by, you know, this myriad of different mm-hmm. levers and sanctions and, and, new, and new ways of, of expressing conflict? Yeah, I mean, in, in in some ways, again, they, they always have been. But again, there there are new ways now. I mean, with someone like Putin, for example, despite all the talk about the fact he's the you know, richest man in the world and has money here and there everywhere, I mean, Putin's real power is, or his real wealth, shall we say, is his political power. I mean, he doesn't need to buy anything. If he wants, if he wants a new palace, as he did, he basically you know arranges for oligarchs who want to remain oligarchs to to pony up to pay for it. He, you know. That's that. That's his his monetizable thing. He's not the kind of figure who is clearly sort of stashing money away in a Swiss bank account with the idea that one day he will retire to an agreeable villa in you know sort of the uh, Caribbean and go and play golf or whatever. There are other strong men clearly who are very different, who precisely are motivated by stashing their money outside, and you know are are, are therefore much more vulnerable. But the interesting thing is about the sort of the strong man is also, I mean, strong men, and I don't like that because often they think they're not very strong at all, really. But anyway, that kind of, of, of you know, single personalized authoritarian figure. The key thing is they are mythic figures. It's not just about the fact that Putin controls the key security apparatus and such like. It's also because he's managed to create for himself this persona, which is not the heavily Botoxed 69-year-old, but still the vigorous, dynamic, bare-chested man of action. And that is his, his vulnerability. Again, if we go back to you know, the, the earlier question about the, you know, why, do not we, why do we not use this information? I mean, what is clear is that, for example, by amplifying you know, videos of his exceedingly garish palace um, down on, on the Black Sea with its... Uh, room with a with a, a pole dancing pole and all that kind of thing and generally news about his corruption and such like the west has indeed been actively trying to puncture part of his his mythic persona and we could do a lot more to be perfectly honest so i think this is the interesting thing is that yes there will be different there will be some some strong men for whom precisely going after their money will absolutely be the most efficient way of doing it for others it'll actually be about undermining their information control and breaking that through not necessarily disinformation but quite possibly amplifying truths that are uncomfortable but again it, it's it's about looking for the individual instruments which will allow us to undermine or modify the behavior of that particular person. I remember once talking to a British spook who said that actually, you know, what he wished was they had the capability that they could basically hack into Putin's mobile phone. I don't actually think he uses a mobile phone, but anyway, that's, that's not the point of the anecdote. <laughs> hack into his mobile phone and change the ringtone without him knowing until it rang. And to be able to do that every day, just to make that point or we can reach out and do this to you. So, you know, I mean, even that, I mean, as a way of behavior modification, on one level, it's totally trivial. 
so that his you know, his phone plays Rule Britannia when it rings um, in, in, instead of the Russian national anthem or, or whatever else. But in terms of psychological impact, that might be great. So again, you just pick the right instrument for the right target. I was going to suggest uh, people could tweet at us what, uh, what what their best idea for for, for Putin's ringtone were <laughs> that ever to be possible. Well, maybe you could pass that on, Mark. But we've only got three minutes left, so final question. I'm sorry to everyone that I haven't managed to get to. Thank you so much for all of your wonderful questions. They were all brilliant, Mark. I'd like us to end it where we where we began suitably enough. I think about definitional warfare. So uh, it, it's such a compelling picture you paint of this kind of ebb and flow of warfare from something which was big to something which was well defined to something which is expanding again. I, I, I wonder whether you ever see a world now where, where almost like the, the definitional boundaries of warfare become reasserted. You know, might we ever see a backlash and kind of almost like restore the Westphalian conception of war and actually say, you know what, we need to put rules back around all of this and definitions back around all this and, 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 and continuous war isn't something which we are happy with. Um, or is this, at least for the duration now, likely to be the kind of world, definitionally, that, we, that, that we're going to live in? I mean, in many ways, I would love to think, think that we could see that return to that notion. But, but first of all, I mean, one of the key problems is so many of the, the new instruments of, of warfighting are hard to attribute. I mean, you know, it's, if, if it's a cyber attack, you can be pretty certain where it came from, but you can never, it's very, very hard to actually say for certain that came from that computer and it was done because of that reason. In a way that if a plane flies off from an airfield and, come, and drops a bomb on you, you can be rather more confident. So I think that's one of the key problems. And it's already that there's talk, for example, about a cyber treaty at the United Nations, and they're already running into real problems about this. So one is it's hard to do so. Secondly, again, Yes, the Westphalian order was, was, was fine, but as I said, our experience of the Cold War was actually what that meant was the haves agreed rules against each other. And I'm very much minded of the time when one of, you know, a British gunner had, had Napoleon in his sights at the Battle of Waterloo. And the Duke of Wellington said that, you know, basically generals do not war on other generals. You know, Blow away as many soldiers as you want, but you don't go after the general. Well, likewise, I think actually even the old order was that rich countries obeyed the rules and they fought their dirty rules-breaking wars in other people's countries. I don't think we want to go back to that. Well, on that note, Mark, thank you so much. This has been Mark Galliotti, everyone. His uh, brilliant new book, The Weaponization of Everything, A Field Guide to the New Air War, is out. Everyone, uh, thank you so much for all your brilliant questions and for coming in and for listening to this Intelligence Squad event. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? 
To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.